because there is just so much here that we want to talk about and explain to you because we're kind of at a hinge in 1 Peter chapter 1 where we have given you facts, or Peter has given you facts about the gospel. And in verse 13, something happens and it changes from facts to commands. And so we want to talk about that a little bit and uh, help you in your Bible study here. And then because from here on, we're going to move to what do we do with that we've learned. That's what Peter's going to help us with this morning. Well, if there ever was an age, my friends, without hope, it is probably the age that we are in right now. It's difficult to listen to any news station without being bombarded with negative news. Whether it's the threat of nuclear war, environmental pollution, racism, drugs, crime, corruption, COVID, you name it, just feels like, boy, it's hard to even make it through a day without some sort of negativity, some sort of negative news. Is it any wonder that so many in our culture live their lives with such a bleak and cynical outlook in life? If you're constantly bombarded with negativity, after a while, if you don't have a hope or if you've placed your hope in the things of this world, you can get beaten down pretty good where you don't think that there's really not a lot of hope that things will ever get any better. But there's nothing in the future that looks any brighter than today. Matter of fact, you're probably anticipating things may get worse. While we certainly understand that from unbelievers who've placed their hope in worldly things, which are temporary at best, I think many believers struggle with living a life of indicative that's indicative of somebody has hope as well. I don't think it's just unbelievers that struggle with this. I think sometimes believers struggle with this idea that we have a hope in Christ. And this is especially true, my friends, when we face trials, when we face persecution, when we face suffering. Boy, that's when it really gets hard, isn't it? To live our lives as if we have hope. That's when it's now, suffering is a theme in First Peter, isn't it? It's kind of the dominant theme of people who are in the midst of suffering, people who are in the midst of trial, people who are in the midst of persecution. If Hebrews was the book of faith, it is, and First John is the book of love, First Peter is the book of hope. We have hope in the midst of our trials. We have hope in the midst of our struggles. We have hope in the midst of our suffering. And hope gives the Christian encouragement in the midst of our trials and tribulations in this life because it focuses our attention on the blessings which await us for all eternity. We are going to keep our eyes firmly focused on heaven and the rewards that we have and the, the confident expectation of all that we have that has been promised to us. Now, just like faith, which we looked at very deeply in the book of Hebrews, hope is a response to the grace of God, just like faith is. But as we shall see in our text this morning, hope is also a responsibility, believe it or not. As believers, we have a responsibility to live as those who have hope. And so after the first 12 verses, which we've heard nothing but 
indicatives or facts. Now we've come to our first imperative commands here. Commands that would be wise for us to pay very close attention to in our text here this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? And ask him to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you again for the immense privilege I have to open up your truth. And Father, today we we mark a change in the tone and the voice that's happening here in 1 Peter. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts will be open, our minds will be open, our eyes will be open, our ears will be open to your wonderful truth. And Father, as always, we don't want to just be hearers of the word, we want to be doers. We take this truth and then apply it to our own heart first. Father, so that we shall be transformed more and more like your son. Less and less like us. For your glory. For your help us to set aside now. Lord, help us to focus our attention on your truth. We ask in Christ's name. Now, before we get to the commands in verse 13, I want you to notice the very first word, and that's the word what? Therefore. Now, I know what you think I'm going to ask you whenever we see the word therefore pop up in Scripture, but since you know that so well already, I want to share something new with you about the word therefore. And that is whenever we see the word therefore in the New Testament, it's always followed by a follow instruction. Commands always follow doctrine. Doctrine tells us what God is doing and explains why we should follow the commands that are about to follow. God never just tells you, do this. He always says, here is a truth you need to know about me. Or here is a truth you need to know about the gospel. Or here is a truth that you need to know about your faith. And then, here's what you need to do. It's always that way, all throughout Scripture. In other words, because of these facts about your faith, this is what you need to do about it. And the same is true here in 1 Peter. That therefore, in verse 13, does this exactly. Because verses 3 through 12, which we just finished up, lay the foundation for the instructions which follow in verses 13 and on. So they're all about the future or the Christian's hope. Now God's great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Verse 3, we have been born again to obtain an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled. Verse 4, it is preserved and protected for us to be revealed in the last time. Verse 5, We presently suffer trials and tribulations so that our faith may be tested and proven to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, verses 7 and 8. We are obtaining as the outcome of our faith the sanctification of our very souls, verse 9. And then last week, as we saw, verses 10 through 12, they not only point to the future but also to the past. But even there, the future aspects of our salvation are the focus. Because Peter argues 
the Old Testament prophets ministered in the past, but they foretold of a future salvation that was proclaimed by the apostles. It's talked about now by preachers today, hopefully, and uh, being proclaimed. And like us, they, they learned they must live their lives, which included some suffering, in light of the outcome of their faith. salvation is so wonderful, even the angels are fascinated to observe it. Now, let's look at the rest of verse 13. So now we know we're going to have some commands. How many commands do we see here in verse 13? There's three commands in this verse. The first one is prepare your minds, or if you have a King James Version, it says gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. There's another command in there that says, keep sober, keep sober. And the third one is fix your hope, okay? Those are the three commands in this verse. Now, usually, you might look at those three commands as all being equally important. But here's where years of language study come in handy because that's actually not the case here. Now, I could explain to you about all the grammar the difference between imperative mood verbs and imperatival participles. You guys with me? No, don't mind. But I know that sugary donut you had for breakfast is about wearing off about right now, and any discussion of grammar would certainly put you over the top, and it would become a snooze fest. So we're going to skip the grammar, but here's what I want you to understand. There's a main command in verse 13, and then there's two subordinate commands. The main command here in verse 13, you can underline this, is fix your hope. Fix your hope. That's the primary command. The other two are subordinate to that. So the main command, fix your hope completely on the grace that's be, that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The two subordinate commands, having prepared your minds and demonstrating self-control or sober in spirit. Now, we also see this somewhere else, so keep your place in 1 Peter and turn to Matthew chapter 28. If you want to see this work in a passage you're probably much more familiar with, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is called what? The Great Commission. Very good. So here we're going to see the same thing, except here we're going to see four commands. Go, therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, it looks like there's four commands, doesn't it? Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. But because there's really only one imperative command and the other are participles, they are subordinate. So here is what this verse really means. Make disciples as you go baptizing and teaching. That's actually the correct interpretation of that verse. Why is that important? Well, because for years we thought the emphasis was on go because in our English Bibles, go is the first thing. So for years, we tried to encourage everybody, you need to witness far away. You need to go. You need to get out of where you're at right now because we're already in a Christian nation. Go, 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 go. 
until we understood that the key verb here is make disciples. So as you're going about, not just go to foreign lands, what was the result of that? Well, we quit making disciples in churches because we thought the going was the primary thing we needed to do. And we are now the fifth biggest mission field in the world. actually have other countries sending missionaries here to witness to us. So, why do I tell you all that? Well, because that's the same thing we find in 1 Peter 1, verse 13. The primary thrust of this verse, then, is this command to fix your hope. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Alright, let's see if we can make it past the main command, which I doubt. Here we go. I didn't put notes here for you here this morning because I'm going to put all three next week when we finish, okay? But here's what I want you to know about this fix your hope, okay? You'll see this again next week. This is our first point. Point number one, believers fix our hope on the grace we will receive when we see Jesus. Believers fix our hope on the grace we will receive when we see Jesus. Here's what Peter's saying. Because... We have received, as believers, so great a salvation. We have a responsibility to live as those who have a hope that's different from that of the world. He's saying, listen, all those things that I just told you about in verses 3 through 12 that explain to you why this is such a great salvation, that's wonderful that you have that. But God wants you to do something with it also. Because with that comes a great responsibility. And one of the responsibilities that you have as a believer is to live your life with hope. Live your life differently from how the world lives. Live your life with a hope that cannot be distinguished. That cannot be put out. That cannot be extinguished, I guess is probably a better way to say it. A hope that cannot be extinguished, cannot be put out, cannot be dampered, cannot be put away. Now, what is hope? Let's just define it very quickly. Hope is very similar to faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, you may recall, gave us a definition for faith, right? Faith is the assurance of things, what? Hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is believing God in the present. Hope is believing God for the things yet to come. Faith believes what God has said and done is true. Hope believes what God has promised to do, but yet has unfulfilled. Things God has promised to do for the future. But in both cases, my friends, it is not a hope like the world hopes. It is a confident expectation. We are to live our lives as if this truth of ours, this hope that we have, is just as sure as the, uh, to happen as the things that have already happened. That's the confident expectation. The world says, well, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Boy, I hope I win the lottery. Boy, I hope the interest rates don't go up. Boy, I hope I get a pay raise. Incidentally, you don't control any of those things. But that's how the world would hope. We 
hope as believers with a confident expectation because, because God said it, it's just already done. We may not have realized it yet, but it's already as good as done. Notice again, this is not a suggestion. He doesn't say, fix your hope. It'd be a good idea if you do that. It's not a recommendation. Fix your hope, among other things. No, it's a command. He is commanding us, God is, to live each day with the confident expectation that every promise God has made about our future will happen. Not might happen, not could happen, not should happen, will happen. And notice the very next word. We are to do this, how? We are to fix our hope completely. Not partially, not off again, on again, not the kind of hope that's representative of an unbeliever. No. We are to fix our hope completely on the promises of God for our future. We are to live every day today knowing that those things will happen in God's perfect time. Whatever he has promised for us yet to that's yet unfulfilled will happen. So keep your place in 1 Peter and flip back to Hebrews chapter 6. Let's just remind ourselves again what the author of Hebrews says here. Because he says in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Let's pick it up there. He says, and we desire, Hebrews 6 verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. You see that? Verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation in the end of every dispute. But in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, who is that? That's us, believers. The unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie and the fact that he's given his oath and sworn to himself, which he cannot break, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. How does he explain what this hope is like for us? This hope we have is like an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. In other words, our hope as believers is anchored as surely as Christ is in the holy of holies. It's that sure. There's no doubt. There's no wavering. It is a fact. Dr. MacArthur writes, I'm paraphrasing here, this great and gracious God who saved us by grace was generous to us beyond description. 
He has forgiven our sins through the perfect sacrifice in Christ on the cross and his resurrection to redeem us. He has transformed us and is worthy of our confident trust for the future, just as he has proven himself worthy of our confident trust in the present. He's been faithful in the past, he is faithful in the present, and he will be faithful in the future.
you're asking me about the rapture, yeah, I'm ready to go. Let's go. I don't have to do that whole dying thing. But if you were going to tell me that today was my last day on earth, but tomorrow or later today, I'm going to see Jesus face to face, I think that becomes a more difficult problem for some. ask you this. If you knew you were going to see Jesus tomorrow, but you didn't know if that meant you were going to die or be raptured, what would be your response? Would it make a difference to you? Should it make a difference to you? Would you not still be seeing Jesus tomorrow?
an issue because the things that we, when we think that these things are going to deliver us from our trials or deliver us from our fears or deliver us from our suffering, then the thing or that person basically becomes an idol to us. We have to feed it because our fears tell us I have to have this or I have no hope. When we make a good thing an ultimate thing, we are crushed when it doesn't deliver. And when we place our greatest hope in the wrong place, we set up a false god. And this is never more tempting to do, my friends, than when we're in the midst of a trial. And trials are an ordinary part of life. So we need help in how we think about our hope when we're in the midst of our trials. And that can be a real issue for if they don't have their minds fixed on the future hope in Christ. Now, why does that happen in the first place? It happens, my friends, because we no longer live each day with the confident expectation of Christ's return. If believers knew Christ was coming tomorrow, it would radically change your priorities for today. There's no doubt. If you knew he was coming tomorrow. The things that you think are so important today would fall off your schedule like the leaves are falling from the trees right now. They would become unimportant, wouldn't they? They become non-essential. Everything that you think is so essential today would mean nothing to you if you knew that was the case. But our responsibility as believers is to live our lives with the full confident expectation that the grace of God is to be revealed at Christ when he comes again. We're to live each day as if that could happen now. Not sometime way in the future, but now. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, because I want to show you what happens when we don't do that. Luke, chapter 12. And here Jesus tells a parable about the faithful steward. And he wants to give a demonstration, right? A parable is what? It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? That's what a parable is, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Luke 12, verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing the parable to us or to everyone else as well? And verse 42, the Lord said, Who then is the faithful, sensible steward? whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master's going to be gone a long time, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of the slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces, assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Notice what happens in this parable. Jesus describes himself as a master, 
and his disciples as stewards or servants, if you will, of the household. And in this parable here, some the master leaves, and some servants say, you know, it doesn't look like he's coming back for a long time. So I know what the master said we should do, but I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live my life the way I want. And so they begin to be harsh to the servants. They eat whatever they want for themselves. They get drunk. And because of this particular servant had lost his expectation of the coming of the master, he throws off all the restraints. Look at all the, the marks of it. There's conflict with other people. There's lots of wastefulness. Instead of soberness, there's drunkenness. And he's not just talking physical. It's another here. He's talking about spiritual drunkenness. In other words, under the influence of worldly things. When the master returns, he punishes the servant and sends him to a place with unbelievers which would seem to imply that he wasn't a believer at all. Notice what happens when we stop believing, trusting, or putting our hope in the confident expectation that Jesus Christ can return at any time. When we lose that focus, and we think we got all the time in the world to make and live our life for Christ, we start to enjoy the things around us more and more and more, and we start to put off, well, that's far away. That's way down the road. But that could not be further from the truth if you know your Bible's words. That's something we do to convince ourselves that it's okay for us to, world, to live a worldly life. So Peter says, listen, if you've lost that sense of joy If your fellowship here on the earth is more desirable to you than fellowship with Christ, if you'd rather stay on the earth than be in Christ's glorious home in heaven, then you're not living each day with the confident expectation of his glorious appearing, no matter what you say. You haven't fixed your hope on the glorious grace that God has promised you, and you've let your hope become displaced on other things. My friends, eliminate that thought and desire from your heart and your mind. You have only one hope. Long for it with your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. Set your hope on the grace that Christ is bringing because Christ has in his hand the full grace of God that he has purchased for you. Do you realize when you're in his presence, the fullness of the things that you have in part now, you will have in completion and in fullness forevermore when you see him face to face. He will confirm you in all righteousness. You will never sin again, nor have a desire to. You'll never sorrow, but God himself will wipe every tear from your eye. You'll never grow weary. You'll never hunger. You'll never thirst. You'll never worry. You'll never be afraid. Christ is about to bring all of this to you. He is bringing it to you now in the present tense, and he will completely fulfill it in the future. Set your hope fully. Don't spare a single ounce of hope for the things of this world. Your entire hope is to be rooted and grounded in his glorious appearing. For what shall we fix our hope, my friends? What is it? 
What are the things that you fixed your hope with confident expectation? What are the things that God has promised that you know will be filled completely at his glorious appearing? Let me just give you a few. Deliverance from death completely. Deliverance from enemies. Eternal life. Freedom from oppression. Fruit for all of the spiritual labors. God's abiding presence forever. God's unfailing love. The fullness of God's grace, grace to be completed in all things. The redemption of our bodies. The resurrection of the dead. Righteousness fulfilled. The magnificence of God's glory. The complete temporal and spiritual restoration of all things as God had originally planned. Those are things we should be have the confident expectation. How does that benefit you? you as a Christian. Hope equips you for spiritual warfare. Because no matter what trial you face now today, your eyes are set on what you know is the future. Hope gives you assurance. Hope leads you to rejoicing. Hope produces boldness. Hope produces godly living. Hope strengthens and encourages you. Because you know without a doubt if God promised it, draws our desires and affections away from Christ must be set aside so that our devotion is undivided and undiminished. And the cares of the world complete, compete strongly for your heavenly hope, don't they? I would be, I dare not close without reminding you that your hope reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that your eyes, the eyes of your heart, may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. For above, far above all, every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. My friends, I hope that you are living your life with the confident expectation of the Lord's return. And that no matter what this world throws at you, you never take your eyes off of Christ and the promises that he made. And if you truly believe that and truly live that in your heart,
Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder from your text, or perhaps even the challenge. Lord, in a world where hope seems so distant, where hope seems so fleeting at times, when the things that we've trusted to be good, or things that we've trusted that would solve our problems, or things that we've trusted that would fix our trials, or our tribulations, or our persecution, or our suffering, when they fail to deliver, Lord, we can lose hope, but as believers, our hope was never, ever designed to be put on the things of this world. It's to be anchored in you. You never change. You cannot do anything that's outside of your very character. And because you have proclaimed it, because you have put it in your holy scripture, because you have commanded it, it is as sure 